Hey everyone and welcome to this new episode of your Linux and open source news podcast. And this week we have a bunch of interesting stuff. Uh, first, it seems that Linux Mint is going to change a few design elements and make it way easier to pick what your desktop looks like. We have System76 working on a new in-house design for a laptop, which is not going to be reusing an off-the-shelf chassis from Clevo or Tongfang, so that's pretty interesting as well. And we have Google Drive making a big, big blunder that they finally backtracked on. So let's get started. As always, all the links to the articles I use to make this podcast are in the description of the podcast in the show notes. And as always, this podcast is user supported. So if you like it this way without ads and sponsors, please consider checking out the Patreon or the other support links that are in the show notes. So let's begin. So first, let's talk about Linux Mint. And if you followed the channel and the review I did of Linux Mint 21.1, I think it was, uh, or if you just follow the regular news around Linux Mint, you know that they kind of completely revamped their default look and feel for their Cinnamon desktop, or at least for their implementation of their own desktop called Cinnamon. Uh, they basically made it look a lot more like Windows. Gone are the green accents, it's now more... Uh, pale, stark colors with manila folders and a blue accent color out of the box. It's very reminiscent of Windows, or at least as Windows used to be for Windows 7, 8, 10. And it's a good change, because Mint definitely aims at Linux beginners, which have a big fat chance of coming from Windows, and since the default layout is already very much like Windows, it just makes it a more easy to jump in uh, distribution. But they don't want to settle on these changes, and so they have planned some uh, improvements to that uh, for Linux Mint 21.2. And those mainly have to do with how you can actually pick a theme. Because if you know how Linux Mint works, you probably know that they have a giant list of various themes. Uh, they basically have three main themes, I think, the Minty Y, the Minty Y Legacy, and another even older one, and all of them are split into a light and dark variant for each accent color they offer. So basically, when you're trying to change the theme, you have to browse through a huge list of themes and looks, and it's not always easy to pick matching ones, but also just to pick one. And so they want to revamp that and go more the route of uh, what Ubuntu is doing or what KDE is doing. So in Linux Mint 21.2, which should release uh, before the end of June this year, you'll get what they call a style selector, which means basically you have a drop-down menu that lets you select the main general style. And for example, Mint Y, which is their current theme, is the default style. So you, you're going to pick that, or the Mint Y Legacy, or any other styles that you have added. Once you pick that, you have three options. You've got a mixed mode, which is going to mix light and dark applications. You have a dark mode and a light mode. And on top of that, you have accent colors to pick from. If you still want to configure everything individually, like icon themes, window manager themes, GTK themes, you still have advanced settings that let you do that, but out of the box, it will be way easier to just customize your desktop. You like the default main theme, but you like the green that they used before, you can do that in one click. And it's also way easier for people who want to create 
themes and styles to implement these with Mint because you don't have to have a theme that has three or four different parts and make sure that they're placed in the right places so users can select them. You can just create a JSON file that references your theme, your window manager theme, and etc. and the icon theme, and the user will just be able to select it from the drop-down menu in the appearance settings of Linux Mint. It's a big, big improvement in terms of user experience and user interface, and it just pushes the new Linux theme uh, a little bit further. Now, they also applied a few tweaks to the icons. Uh, if you remember, in Linux Mint 21.1, they used those manila folders that look very much like the older Windows directories, pretty much like the current ones as well. But they had a stripe of color on the bottom right corner, to reuse your accent color. Apparently people really did not like that, and so they're gonna remove this stripe of color. And for some reason, but I don't really know why, they will also add a Ubuntu-like color scheme, very reminiscent of the Yaru theme that Ubuntu uses by default. So you'll get those, those gray folders with orange accents everywhere, an orange accent color, and colors on the theme that really look like Ubuntu. I don't really know why, because having something that looks like Windows makes sense, having something that looks like older Linux Mint makes sense for previous users, but having something that looks like Ubuntu when they're trying so hard to differentiate themselves from Ubuntu uh, by removing snaps, by not using GNOME but using the Cinnamon desktop, and by applying various decisions that go completely towards the opposite end of the spectrum of what Ubuntu is doing, I don't really know. Maybe it's to try and lure Ubuntu users. Like, hey, you're using Ubuntu, but Linux Mint can also look and work like Ubuntu, so we have a theme that looks like it. I don't know. Not, not sure that's gonna work if that's the plan, but yeah, they're gonna have that option. So it's an interesting change. Uh, I really personally liked the new theme of uh, Linux Mint 21.1. I think it's a really good move. And even if you don't take into consideration the fact that it sort of looks like Windows, it, it looks good. It's a good look, uh, in my opinion at least. It's subjective, but it looks good. And now they're finally going to have something on par with KDE or, or Ubuntu in terms of how you can change that look and feel uh, to make it easier to do that in a few clicks if you don't want to customize everything. Now, the last remaining holdout basically is GNOME, which still does not have accent colors. Uh, if you want to change the color of Advaita, you'll have to download another theme and try to force it onto the LibAdvita apps. I really wish GNOME had that accent color selector, and I really wish they had it back when they introduced LibAdvita, because that would have made the transition a lot easier for them, and I think a lot of people would have been less pissed with GNOME and LibAdvita at the time if they had at least that color uh, change. So I saw on Mastodon some captures of a work in progress slash prototype for this, so thankfully in the future there's a good chance we might get it, but yeah, come on GNOME, that's an important feature uh, for customization and to just show users that you sort of listen to them. And Mint, which is generally not the first to do anything, did it before you. Now let's talk about System76. Uh, you probably know about them, they're a computer manufacturer and, and, and reseller, uh, mostly in the United States, although you can order their laptops if you don't live in the US, they ship to a lot of countries in the world, probably gonna have to pay a lot in, in shipping fees, uh, but yeah, it, it's doable. And they also make their own desktops uh, called the Thelios, uh, T-H-E-L-I-O, 
And those are designed in-house. They actually build the chassis themselves. They design them uh, and they're all open specs, if I remember correctly. So you can, you could try and replicate one and create one yourself if you wanted. They also make the launch keyboard, which is a very, very good mechanical keyboard. Pretty expensive, but very good uh, in terms of how it feels, in terms of customization, uh, if you can get used to their peculiar layout. Now, it looks like System76 is not just satisfied uh, with making, assembling, let's say, laptops designed and built by other companies, mostly Clevo and Tongfang. That's what most Linux manufacturers do, uh, Tuxedo, Slimbook, they both do that as well. They, they procure chassis that already exist, they fit in the parts, and they sell them under their brand. Doesn't mean that those are bad, but it doesn't allow them much flexibility in terms of what products they can offer. If they have a super great idea, but no one makes it, they can't really implement it. And I think that's the reasoning behind this move from System76. They probably want to have a platform that they can build upon to implement the things that they really want to bring to their customers and not be constrained by already existing designs. So Carl Richel, uh, or Rickle, uh, the CEO of System76, teased a few pictures on Mastodon about this specific laptop. Its codename is Virgo, and what they showed is uh, an LCD panel being milled, well, the back of an LCD panel being milled out of aluminium. So he went into a little bit more details in the comments of his post, uh, saying that they will work with suppliers to make the parts, they won't build all the parts themselves, but those parts will be designed according to their own specifications. So Basically, they're going to do like every major hardware manufacturer. They're going to contract out the creation of the parts to another company, but they're going to design those parts themselves. It's basically what Apple does uh, for most of their stuff. And they apparently already own a bunch of machines to help with that. Uh, they have machines for lasering, for milling aluminium, for 3D printing, and for painting, which they probably already use to build the Thelio line of desktops. And I guess they still do a little bit of the work themselves. And they also apparently want to stick to the layout that they introduced with that launch keyboard. Uh, it has a split space bar, it's got three key sizes, and it's got a basically a non-standard, it's not ISO, it's not ANSI, it's, it's something in between. And honestly, once you get used to it, it works. Uh, not sure it's mandatory or it actually adds that much value to the default layouts. But it's an interesting one, and apparently they want to stick with that, and they might also bring a low-profile mechanical keyboard for that laptop, which might be very interesting. So I'm going to be following this closely. I hope I'll be able to get my hands on a review unit uh, once the device is ready. I'm pretty sure it's going to take them a while. I wouldn't expect uh, this first laptop to be sold in 2023 completely designing and building a whole new device and working with contractors to manufacture the parts and then assemble them, test it, make sure that it's a ready product that you can sell. I'm not sure that's going to be done in 2023, but as soon as they have something to announce, I'll definitely report on that. And as I said, I can absolutely understand why they're doing this. It makes more sense. Uh, they already have their own operating system that they're working on, making their own desktop on top of an Ubuntu base. It's, it's Pop! OS. They're working on their own Cosmic desktop. It makes sense that they would also want to tailor the laptops they offer. I also don't expect their whole range to be replaced by in-house designed laptops anytime soon, because that's very expensive and very time-consuming. But 
I think progressively, as years go by, they will phase out certain devices and replace them with, with ones that they actually designed themselves. Because it's just more freedom for them to offer the experience they want their consumers to have. And it's not impossible to do, even if you're a relatively small company, because Purism, for example, or Star Labs in the UK, already do that. And Star Labs, uh, they make three different laptops, I think. They have the Starlight, the Starbook, and the Starfighter. And all three have been designed in-house by Star Labs. They make their own chassis. They don't buy something off, uh, of any other company to repurpose it. So I think it's doable, but it's definitely going to take a bit of time to make sure that works. Now, let's talk about Google and privacy and cloud storage. Uh, first, we have a bit of good news because it seems that Google will make it mandatory for Android applications to let users delete their account and all the data inside that account from the app itself, but also from the web, uh, which means that basically if an Android app lets you create an account, it will also have to provide an option to delete that account. They say that they want to create more trust in Android apps and in Google Play in general, which is good. Uh, because, yes, it means that you will not have to reinstall an application just to be able to delete your account. If you delete the app, you can still just go online and delete your account, which some applications don't really let you do. Uh, for example, in games, uh, certain games will just let you create an account to save your progress and sync it between devices or resume it on another phone. But to delete that account, you'll have to use the app. Or sometimes the app doesn't even have an option to delete your account. So now they will have to provide that option in the app, but also on the web, so you make, can make sure that you can remove everything from the application. And application developers will also have to disclose anything that they decide to keep in terms of data when you delete that account. Uh, they can only use legitimate reasons like security, accounting, stuff like that. Uh, and so they have to inform the users of those reasons and of the exact data they're going to keep. Now, developers have until December to ask Google their questions about this new policy. And in early 2024, uh, Google will actually add on Google Play uh, various badges to let users see which applications let them delete their account, let them delete their data. They'll, they'll add another little tag on top of the app listing. Now, they didn't give an explicit deadline, or at least I couldn't find it, for when this will become mandatory for Android applications, but it looks like they want to make this mandatory. And I know I dunk on Google quite a lot on this channel for their bad privacy practices, but this is actually a good move. Uh, it, it lets users have more choice and it prevents, let's say, shady developers uh, from locking users in and making them have the app to delete an account, which is just an extra step so you don't delete it, but then the application developer has the data, can access it, can use it uh, to, to sell a profile, target people. So yeah, it's, uh, it's a good thing that they implemented that. And we also have some not-so-good news about Google. Uh, I don't know if you heard about this, but a few months ago, they tried to put a file creation cap on Google Drive which would basically mean you could not have more than 5 million files at any given point onto your Google Drive. And it sounds like a lot of files, 5 million files. I don't think a lot of people would have 5 million photos or 5 million documents uh, stored on their Google Drive. And so they decided to make that change and they rolled it pretty quickly uh, without any prior communication 
as a nice little surprise for users. It was like, hey, surprise, now it's 5 million files, uh, that's the limit, you can't exceed that. And so users that were above this limit could no longer use their drive because they could not upload anything new, they could not create any new file. And that change was not only for personal uh, use, it's not only for individuals, but it also affected uh, Google Workspace, which is their company enterprise-focused product built on Google Drive. And this affected everyone, even paying customers that pay for extra storage. Which means that basically, if you paid for what they would call unlimited storage, well, it was still limited in a way. And Google tried to justify the change, saying that they wanted to prevent misuse of Google Drive. But it's another misstep, because basically, you're paying a company to provide you a service, but they get to decide how you're supposed to use it. It was just a very, very bad move and poorly communicated. And so they decided to roll back this change this week, uh, stating that if they need to make changes in the future, they will communicate them to users in advance. Now, there are a bunch of things that are really wrong with this. First, it's absolutely insane that Google did not communicate in advance about this move, because it would obviously affect some customers. If they decided to set the limit at 5 million files, it means that some customers went over that, or they would have set it lower. Which means they knew that it would affect certain customers, even paying customers, but they just didn't care enough to provide a reason or advance time for users to get set up or try to avoid that limit. So that's the first really bad thing. The second is that Google is basically trying to do cost-cutting here. Uh, they probably have a bunch of users that have completely filled to the brim Google Drives with tons and tons of files, and so they're trying to implement a storage cap by implementing a file cap. But that's not how it works. You pay for storage. You should not be limited in how you use that storage. If you want to store 5 million, I don't know, 1 gigabyte files on your drive, as long as you have paid for the amount of storage, then you should be allowed to do so. There shouldn't be any limits on that. And third, well, it's just a sobering reminder that these big companies, they, they don't provide you a service. That service comes with a big, big asterisk, which is that they can change it any time they want. The conditions you currently have on that product can evolve at any time. They're not required to communicate. You don't have to agree to them. And basically, if you're not okay with that change, well, you're on your own. Download all your files and re-upload them to another cloud storage service. They just don't care. Uh, they're, they're not your friend. They're not providing you with a great value service. They're providing you with a service for an amount of money, but they're also adding up a lot of rules on top of that service, and those can change at any moment. So it's now time to <laughs> reiterate this little phrase, which is, the cloud is just someone else's computer, unless the cloud is hosted by you. And that's personally why I use Nextcloud to store my files, because I do not want to depend on another company on, for how my cloud works, what I can do with it. I use Nextcloud. If they ship an update that I don't like, I can just skip it, not update it, and, and keep it working the way I want. Or I can use any other fork of anything else that will happen if they decide to make a stupid decision. I do not want to trust those big companies with my files or with their services because you never know what they're going to do to your current offer or service.
Now let's talk about the Linux kernel. And if you followed the recent news, the latest release of the Linux kernel, version 6.2, added better support for Apple Silicon, for the most recent Macs, the M1 Macs. And even though it was not mainline support for the complete computer, it was at least a good first step to support the chips that they use. But you still cannot just use Linux kernel 6.2 on any distro on a recent Mac, a lot of stuff is not going to work. Well, this work is being continued and the Linux kernel version 6.4 will add more of the amazing Asahi Linux work, which is basically the distribution that is reverse engineering all of that Apple hardware and writing Linux drivers for them. Well, all their work, uh, well, a lot of their work will land in the Linux kernel 6.4, but this time adding support for M2 Max, which is the new chip uh, that has been added uh, by Apple to their recent computers. So it should bring the same level of compatibility for M2 devices as already exists on the mainline Linux kernel for the M1, M1 Pro, M1 Max, and M1 Ultra chips. Uh, and it will support NVMe storage, PCIe, managing the CPU frequency, and like IOMMU and a few other things. Now it's still missing support for the Wi-Fi and the Bluetooth chip. It won't support USB just yet, the keyboard and trackpad either, or the video output for the Mac mini. If you currently want to run Linux on an Apple Silicon Mac, your only real option right now, and even with the Linux kernel 6.4 when it's out, it's Asahi Linux. You need to stick to Asahi Linux or at least use their kernel in another distribution. And it's still in alpha state right now. Not everything is stable. But it's still pretty cool to see that all the hard work that these guys are doing is being passed on to the mainline Linux kernel as they improve it. So basically when they decide something is stable enough or full featured enough, they, they create a merge request for the Linux kernel and they they get their work added to the mainline Linux kernel. So yeah, it's cool. And I think we're not that far off uh, from being able to run like Fedora or Ubuntu on an M1 or M2 Mac because these guys have really been really been super great about this work. Uh, they recently streamed something about trying to run Steam and Steam games directly on Asahi Linux on a Mac. Uh, because they can use the Rosetta translation layer or another translation layer written from ARM to, to x86 to translate those Windows translated games that were made for x86 into Linux compatible games made to run on ARM, which is actually insane. They are doing an awesome job and I really hope we can soon see all of that work land in a Linux kernel so anyone can use their distro of choice on that brand new Apple hardware. Now this week we also have a small progress update from Elementary OS. Uh, as you know, Elementary OS 7 released a few months ago. And since it's sort of a semi-rolling release where they update the desktop and the apps but keep the internals based on Ubuntu LTS, well, there are some changes this month. So first is their sideloading app, which is their little program that lets you basically run a Flatpak ref file and add a Flatpak app that is not in Elementary OS's repos and also add the remote this application comes from to your system. So they tweaked that a little bit. It used to use a pretty scary uh, turn of phrase saying that you're going to install an untrusted app. It was kind of letting the user think that these applications were not safe, not secure, when the real message was 
we have not vetted this app. We don't really know uh, what it's doing. So if you install it, well, you decide to trust the developer. So they rephrased uh, their little application, their sideloading app. So yeah, you, you know that you decide to trust the application, but it's not untrusted. It's just that you have to take that extra step of trusting the developer. Now, it will also show a little bit more text about the permissions that the application requires. It won't give you a full rundown of all the permissions the application will use, uh, which is a shame because that's way more practical. But if the app requires, let's say, severe permissions, like access to all your hardware, access to all your disks, uh, then it's going to display a little warning to tell you, hey, it's it really has big permissions. And when you install it, you grant them to the app. So be careful about that. They also worked on the Elementor iOS mail client, uh, which got a lot of fixes. It's a great mail client, but it tends to be a bit crashy. Uh, it, it has been completely rewritten from what I understand in Elementor iOS 7, but it was still sort of unstable. And apparently they fixed a lot of those crashes and issues, which is cool. And they also improved the online accounts part of their settings to more accurately set your username when you configure an SMTP account. So there's less user input when you're actually adding an email account to Elementor iOS. Now their online accounts panel in the settings is still super lackluster. It's basically only email. You can't add a Nextcloud or own cloud account. Uh, can't add a Google account if I remember correctly. It's really, really lacking a bunch of plugins compared to what GNOME or KDE provide. But yeah, at least the email part is now better. They also worked a lot on the terminal app, but no real new features. It's mostly fixing stuff for the keyboard shortcuts, for the context menus, for supporting URLs and clicking on them. They also worked on the window manager, uh, which should offer better notifications now. It should handle them better. It should be able to display them in the multitasking view, which previously, if you went into multitasking view and then received a notification, it would just not be displayed at all. It would be in your notification center, but you have missed the pop-up. So now it handles that, which is cool. And they also released an update to their Flatpak platform, which is what developers that want to create Elementor iOS apps can use to actually create those applications. So they rebased it on the GNOME 44 platform because, well, Elementor iOS uses GTK as a base and a bunch of GNOME components, which they built on top of with their own libadvita equivalent, which is called Granite or Granite. Granite? Granite. And so, yeah, you have the latest versions of Granite and all its widgets, the latest versions of GTK and the GNOME platform, which means that if you develop an app for Elementor iOS, you should now use this latest uh, Flatpak platform because it also improves support for applications that use Libid Vita. So if you want to develop an app for Elementor iOS, but also sort of make it work for GNOME uh, and you decide to go with Libid Vita, it will be better supported on Elementor iOS now. So it's not a feature-heavy month for Elementor iOS, and honestly, since the release of OS 7, they mostly have been in bug fixing and polish mode. Not many apps got new features and new improvements, but it's still nice to see that this thing is still being worked on. Uh, they didn't just ship OS 7 and then say, oh, you know what, we have no one to work on this. There's still some interest in that distro and desktop. There's still some work being done, and it's pretty cool because while I don't use it anymore, I have a lot of love for what they bring and what they create and how they really try to make things work with other desktops, working on standards. It's really cool. So I'm glad to see that there's still activity around this desktop. Now, speaking of GTK and Libid Vita, 
Uh, GNOME might be mainly focused on bringing new features and widgets to libadvita, but it doesn't mean that GTK, which is the underlying library for GNOME, for Mate, for XFCE, Elementary OS, and more, it doesn't mean that GTK isn't getting some love as well. And they're currently working on the next version, 4.12, which is shaping up to be a pretty big one with some good additions. And the main one is support for Wayland fractional scaling. It will be experimental for the hardware-accelerated renderers, which is probably what most people use, renderers using Vulkan or OpenGL that actually draw the contents of a window using your GPU. But even if it's experimental, it's still a nice step to get true fractional scaling on Wayland without blurriness. It's a step that KD already took. Uh, if I remember correctly, it's going to be for Plasma 6. And so having GNOME support that is also really good. The current, well, Wayland currently supports fractional scaling, but not to the latest spec, which means that it's fake fractional scaling. Basically, it's going to scale at 2x or 1x, and then it's going to scale up or down from that, which means it's not rendered at a fractional scale. It's downscaled or upscaled to that. Uh, so it leads to some blurry elements, blurry buttons or text or icons, and it's not the best experience. So having native Wayland fractional scaling support is going to be a big improvement for GTK, for GNOME, and all other desktops that support Wayland and, and use GTK. They also improved support for how applications can display textures, which mostly are used in image viewers, for example, to paint the images you're viewing on the screen. And so applications will now have more control over how these textures are filtered when they're scaled up or down, for example, when you zoom in on an image. So it's going to lead to so certainly performance improvements in applications, but also in rendering and viewing improvements. And finally, GTK 4.12 will also revamp some widgets to replace the old GTK tree view with three widgets, GTK list view, column view, and grid view. Now, these widgets are already available in GTK. They are, for example, already in use in the new file picker of GNOME, uh, which is why the file picker can now finally display image thumbnails, because previously it used GTK tree view, which did not have support for that. Now it used GTK grid view or list view, which you can switch between, and so you finally can have support for thumbnails. So these widgets will get improved and will get bug fixes, better keyboard navigation. So they are basically ready for prime time now and can be used in every app. And so I'm expecting most GTK-based file managers to actually make use of these new widgets instead of using the old GTK tree view. And on top of these updates to GTK, WebKit GTK, which is the rendering engine for GTK, the web engine for GTK based on WebKit, uh, this is also getting hardware-accelerated compositing under Wayland, which means that the web pages you render can now be rendered using the GPU instead of the CPU. So that's great if you use applications that use a lot of list views, so for example, web apps created in Epiphany, or just various web apps you can download on Linux. They tend to, if they're not Electron apps, they tend to use uh, WebKit GTK. Or if you just use GNOME Web as your browser, you can expect probably more battery life because generally when you go to hardware acceleration, you tend to not solicitate the CPU as much and the GPU consumes less power to render things because it's actually its job and it's better at it. So you can expect better battery life and better performance uh, in GNOME Web and other browsers that will make use of this new version of WebKit GTK, which is nice. And if everything I just said about GTK or WebKit GTK sounds like complete nonsense and gibberish, 
all you have to know is that GNOME and all other GTK-based desktops will benefit from these improvements uh, to better support Wayland and have better widgets to create applications with. So yeah, it's, it's all good news, basically. Now, we also have something a little bit more concerning this week, uh, as the company that hosts the very popular YouTube DL, YouTube Downloader, website, uh, the company that hosts that website was ordered by a German court to take the website offline. Uh, that hosting provider is called Uberspace, and they were sued by record labels over YouTube DL's capacity of downloading videos from popular websites, for example, YouTube. And those videos could potentially include copyrighted music. So it must be a tool for piracy, right? That's the conclusion that the court reached anyways. So the code for YouTube DL is hosted on GitHub, and it seems to be safe because GitHub was already ordered to remove that code. They did it, but then they reinstated it, and no one asked them to remove it again. So probably the code there is safe, but the website will be shut down. It's still up for now, so maybe the hosting provider is waiting for their appeal to that decision uh, to be ruled upon. But yeah, if they lose in appeal, then this website will be shut down. And this is pretty concerning, because it means that the German courts have basically reduced a tool to its worst possible use, which is, in this case, copyright infringement. But that's also forgetting that YouTube DL can be used to download stuff that is not on YouTube, that is not copyrighted. It can download videos from about a thousand websites, and it has more legitimate users than it has copyright infringing ones. It can be used, for example, in courts to download evidence to make sure that people don't delete videos that could incriminate them. It can be used in journalistic work to reference stuff. Or it can be used by a stupid YouTuber like me who forgot to back up a certain video and needs to re-download it from their own YouTube channel. It, it can be used even for transformative work that is allowed under most copyright rules in almost every country in the world. For example, I could download a, a song and use that as a base to completely transform it and modify it. And that is a use case that is completely allowed legally. So they basically took YouTube's DL worst case scenario, which is, yes, infringing on copyright by downloading music illegally, and decided that this was its only use and it should be ruled on that. But in that case, you might as well shut down Google entirely because it lets you find torrents. Or you might as well shut down operating system companies because they don't block users from downloading illegal stuff. It, where does it stop? It's completely weird. And so for now, ultimately, the tool is still on GitHub and it can still be accessed by anyone. And I have no doubt that if the code is ever at risk, it will be forked left and right, and it will disseminate in the most vibrant example of the Streisand effect, uh, where trying to stop something on the internet only makes it bigger. I am also sure that YouTube DL will be able to find another hosting provider in a country that won't cave to the demands of record labels, or just find another provider for the duration uh, <laughs> until someone else brings a lawsuit on top of it. But it's still a setback. It means that in Germany, website providers can be held liable for the content they host, or at least they have to comply to various decisions, which is bad for their business, because if you're trying to build something new, but that's in a gray area, then you're you're probably afraid of choosing a big hosting provider, for example, or even a... No, you're probably even more afraid of choosing a small one because you know that they won't really have as much means to defend themselves in court than a big one. So it's bad for business, and it's also bad because it means that 
if a tool can be completely changed and used in a way that might circumvent certain protections, then it's entirely legal, even if it has completely legitimate use cases. I don't think it's right, and it really annoyed me when I read that, so I just wanted to share that. Pretty sure most of you will agree with this, but uh, yeah, it's uh, I'm, I'm tired of these record labels and copyright holders that are just bullying people into submission with the large amount of cash that they make off the backs of artists, and they always use that same defense. They're trying to protect artists and copyright, and and at the same time, they make deals with Spotify, which pays artists virtually nothing. I don't know. It, it just doesn't feel right, and it's super annoying, and, and it's also concerning because it means that if your tool can be used in any way that might circumvent something, even if it's just 0.1%, then yes, in some countries, you're going to lose a lawsuit. It's just, it's just weird to me. So let's finish this podcast with the gaming news. And of course, we have the release of Wine, because what would a Linux and open source news podcast be like without a weekly release of Wine? So this week, it's Wine 8.5, and it has an updated version of their DirectX to Vulkan translation layer, which means better performance in games, basically. And it also brings 21 bug fixes, notably for Deus Ex Invisible War, Notepad++, Sins of a Solar Empire Rebellion, Chocolatey, the Windows Package Manager, and more. And if you're wondering why that matters, it's because, well, basically, if you game on Linux, you're using Wine, but just repackaged into Proton. So most of the work that Wine does to fix things uh, is also done by people contributing to Proton and is also used in Proton to play some games. So always important to report on that. Now, we also have some good news about game support, but also some bad news. Uh, the good news is about Halo, the Master Chief Collection. It is now officially supported on the Steam Deck. It is listed as playable when previously it was unsupported. And that's because the developers added support for easy anti-cheat on Linux. So previously you could complete all the single player campaigns on your own, which was fun, but you could not play multiplayer matches. And now you can. Uh, and if I remember correctly, Hello MCC also has online co-op for campaigns, so you should probably be able to do that as well which is really cool. And the developers also said that they want to continue to improve compatibility with the Steam Deck, which also means compatibility with Linux. And that's good. There apparently are still some issues with the game and with their implementation. For example, if you decide to use a launch option to enable Easy Anti-Cheat, it's actually going to disable it. So if you want to enable Easy Anti-Cheat, you need to launch it with the option to disable Easy Anti-Cheat, which they probably messed up somewhere in the code and didn't implement the right function with the right case, but that's not a big deal. And there are also apparently potential freezes and crashes when playing multiplayer matches. So it's not perfect yet, but that update is six megabytes, uh, which means that it really basically is just a few line of code changes, plus adding the easy anti-cheat binary inside of what the application distributes. So it really is not that big of a deal. They obviously have a little bit more work to do to make sure that the implementation works flawlessly, but it doesn't seem like it's such a huge deal to implement. And on the other side of the spectrum, in terms of terrible support, The Last of Us Part 1 has now been reviewed by Valve and is listed as unsupported on the Steam Deck. Because, let's be honest, it's been a shit show on PC in general, whether it's on Windows or on Linux, and it's been even worse on the deck with its more limited capabilities compared to a full-blown high-end gaming PC. 
which means that the game just runs so poorly that it cannot be certified by Valve. Now Naughty Dog, the original studio that created The Last of Us, said that they want to fix these issues on Windows or on the Steam Deck or on Linux, uh, but they are not in charge of fixing those. They contracted that port to someone else, so they're ultimately the ones that are gonna have to fix it. But they said that they would prioritize general fixes and patches for performance, bugs, crashes, and memory leaks before working on Steam Deck compatibility specifically. Which, I mean, I can understand. Uh, you might as well put out the big fire before you start putting out the smaller fires. Uh, so the big one is the vast majority of players for this game on PC, which are going to be on Windows. So you have to fix all the general issues, but fixing those issues will also solve them on Linux and the deck. So it's like it benefits everyone. And then they're going to work on specifically tailoring it for the Steam Deck, which is probably going to involve... Maybe, I don't know, shipping lower resolution textures so it doesn't eat up all the RAM of the device or stuff like that. And if we're still talking about the deck, it also looks like it's going to pass the 3 million units sold uh, this year. The 3 million units sold mark. And compared to console numbers, it's obviously going to seem ridiculous. It's, it's really low. If Xbox had sold 3 million Xbox Series X in its first year... Microsoft would probably have shuttered uh, the Xbox console division and focused on Game Pass exclusively. But we have to remember that this is not just a console or not just a PC. It straddles a line between both worlds. It's a console in my mind, mainly a console, but it's also a computer because it doesn't have its own store. It's piggybacking off of the Steam store. So it's interesting. I think it, those are really, really good numbers. It's a whole new category of devices. Yes, handhelds have existed for a long while. Nintendo makes them and have, has made them for, I don't know, 20 years, uh, maybe more. And even Sony had some at some point. But this is not just a handheld console. It's a handheld PC that sort of works like a console. It's a new category. And it seems to have sparked a lot of competition because you now have people like the Aya Neo and a lot of other gaming handhelds, One uh, X Player and stuff. Uh, even, I think it's Asus, the Asus Ally, uh, I think, uh, or Acer, I don't know. I think it's Asus. Uh, they also are working on their own device, uh, which is interesting. It's a whole new category. They finally realized that, yes, people would like to have handheld PC gaming as well, but not have to buy their whole library all over again. And now that the chips are actually small enough, power efficient enough, and powerful enough to enable that with a good APU, then there's no reason not to invest in that category. And that category was basically started, or at least very much kick-started, by the Steam Deck. So 3 million units sold is actually a lot, because I'm pretty sure that if you compare it to all other PC handhelds in the same category from Ionio or One X Player, uh, they sold about 10 times more. I would not be surprised. So it's an insane success. And it's also a big proof that PC gaming doesn't have to be done on Windows. You can do it on other operating systems, namely Linux. And that's super important because, yes, Windows handhelds have their place uh, on the market. Even though Windows is not optimized for these devices, and I doubt Microsoft will release a specific version of Windows for these unless they really become a smashing success... Uh, but yes, for people who want access to all the possible PC games, then yes, a Windows handheld makes sense. 
But for people who actually just want a good experience of not using an operating system, but using something more like a console operating system, out of the box, without any configuration, then it makes sense to use a dedicated OS. And it also enables better performance on the hardware than if you had just run stock Windows on it. So it's big. It's 3 million more Linux users in the world. It's a huge success. So yeah, compared to consoles, it sucks. It's not big numbers. And that's probably why Valve doesn't communicate those numbers officially. Because they know the first headlines will be the Steam Deck is selling 10 times lower than the Nintendo Switch or whatever, or 100 times lower. But that's not the point. Uh, it's not compared to the Nintendo Switch. These are not comparable devices. They don't do the same thing at all. They don't have the same purpose. They don't give you the same gameplay experience. So I think those are really, really good numbers. And it's not just the fanboy in me talking, because while I love my Steam Deck, I also admit it has some big issues. Uh, the hardware is pretty good, but the screen is pretty bad. Uh, it has very audible fan noise. Even if you have the newer fans that emit less noise, it's still pretty audible. The battery life isn't that great. And a lot of AAA titles will be played at very low settings. It's not a perfect device, but it's still a smashing success. And it kind of changed how I approached gaming and how a lot of people do. Because apparently, like it's, I think it's like 40 or 42% of people who bought a Steam Deck just only play on the Steam Deck now, even though they probably had a PC capable of gaming because they bought a device with Steam games, for Steam games. So yeah, it's interesting, it's important. Three million is big. So this will conclude uh, this weekly rant because I felt like I was ranting a lot more than usual. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. As always, all the links to the articles are in the show notes. And all the links to support the podcast are also in the show notes. So thank you all for supporting the show, or at least for listening to it. And I guess you'll hear me in the next one. Bye!